Good evening, everybody. Gosh, uh, I went off to do the interviews, and it's like we multiplied like bacteria. <laughs> yeah, there's more more people here than when I left. <laughs> so I want to talk tonight about teachers. What a teacher is, and uh, how we can best utilize a teacher. I'll try not to talk too long, but I have a lot to say about this. (laughs) So what is a teacher? A teacher is not someone who has a special certificate. A teacher is someone who lives in the present moment with freedom. They know how to take a breath in awareness. They know how to take a step in awareness. When you see this person, you can recognize this. That is their certificate. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said uh, once, the robe doesn't make the monk, it's the practice that makes the monk and that there can be monks and nuns who don't wear robes. And there can be monks and nuns who do wear robes that aren't really monks and nuns. A brown jacket like this is not what makes a person a teacher. So I want to talk a little bit about the types of teachers you might encounter. And I'm going to divide this into two big groups. There might be more, but I'm going to talk about two, because all I can really talk about is my own experience. So the first, the, the two types are the guru teacher, maybe the Roshi or Zen master model, and the spiritual friend teacher. So those are the two kinds I want to talk about. So the guru model, you find that in Tibetan traditions, and you find that in some Zen traditions, and maybe in others that I'm not aware of. What makes a guru a special kind of teacher is that their job is to transmit the whole lineage that they represent. They transmit all the teachings. They transmit the institution. It's a big deal. Um, So we think about um, this transmission of lineage And we think about the story of a lineage and what does that mean to have a lineage that you're transmitting. So we have a story about that in in Buddhist practice, particularly in Zen practice. Uh, And the story is that the Buddha transmitted to his students, who transmitted to their students, who transmitted to their students, and that there's a line all the way from the Buddha, more than 100 generations to us. And the story includes the very first transmission, Mahakasapa, who was one of the Buddha's disciples. And in the story, uh, there's a, a large gathering of monks and nuns, and the Buddha held up a flower. And Mahakasapa, of all the monks and nuns there, was the only one that smiled. And that represented that to the Buddha that, that he understood, and that was the first transmission. Um, so when several of us took the, the five mindfulness trainings a while ago, you got a uh, transmission lineage, a piece of paper that had a, 
uh, a whole bunch of teachers' names on it. And this is really lovely in that it gives us a, a sense of, of our belonging, a sense of, of where we've come from. So that's the story. The reality is quite a bit more complicated <laughs> and less clear. Uh, in our case, Zen was carried from India to China by a man named Bodhidharma. And um, we don't know if he was real. We don't know what he actually did or said. We have stories about him. We hear that uh, he faced the wall for nine years before he began to teach. That sounds pretty plausible. That sounds kind of Zen. <laughs> we, we, we can kind of relate to that. A lot of us have been doing something like that. But there's more stories about him, maybe not quite so plausible. Like, for instance, he was so troubled by his sleepiness that he cut off his eyelids. That doesn't sound real plausible. And then where he, where he threw his eyelids on the ground grew up the first tea plants. <laughs> so that sounds darn right impossible, right? <laughs> that's, just, that's not physics. But that's the story. Um, and over history, since the time of Bodhidharma in China, the government has uh, swung between promoting and repressing Buddhist practice, depending on who was the emperor and what was the political wind of the day. And that most recently happened as, early, or as late as the 1960s during the Cultural Revolution. A lot of, a lot of Buddhist monks and nuns and practitioners were stripped of their robes, uh, had to go underground. And in, a, in a, a Confucian tradition like China, one of the ways that you can show that you are legitimate is to have a lineage. Because Confucianism is a, uh, an ancestor-worshipping way of seeing the world. So if you can paint a lineage all the way back to the Buddha, well, now you've got something in that culture. So the reality for the Zen as it grew up in China is that this lineage became a political tool to support the institution of Chan or, or Zen as, as it became in Japan. So we don't see history in the way we think of history here. Of uh, History the way we think of it is someone goes and they get the facts and they, they go to the right to the primary sources, and history is a retelling of the facts. But in this case, history is a retelling of a myth. And it doesn't mean it's not useful, but it's not how the Westerners think about uh, history. It's not how we might think that the lineage is a historical uh, set of facts. So part of uh, that, that lineage is a whole set of stories that have come down about these Zen masters. And some of them are pretty amazing. I, I could tell you just you know a couple of couple of quick stories that sort of this the type of things that have been handed down to us in this idea of lineage. So one Mazu was one of our our Chinese Zen ancestors, and one time a monk came to Mazu and they asked him what is the meaning of Zen, and Mazu said bow down, and when the monk bowed down, Mazu kicked him in the chest, and the monk burst into laughter and was fully enlightened. <laughs> <clears throat> now, if that's a historically accurate story, imagine if you walked down the hall to the interview room and you walked in and said, 
well, what is Zen? And I kicked you in the chest. Uh, it probably wouldn't, you probably wouldn't laugh. Uh, you'd probably call somebody, have me arrested. <clears throat> yeah. So another one, Long Tan, was a Zen master, and he had, uh, Daishan was one of his students uh, who became a Zen master himself. So Daishan was this bundle of energy and just wanted to think everything through and talk and talk and talk. And he went to see Daishan and they had this debate that went on and on and on into the night. And finally, uh, Long Tan was done with that. And so he showed Daishan to the door. And as Daishan was about to step out into the dark night, Long Tan blew out his lamp and Daishan was enlightened. So did that happen? Maybe not so important. Maybe even the story about Mahakasapa was not true. Because he doesn't show up in, that, in a story like that until 1035 is the first uh, documented evidence of that story. And likely it was made up 1,500 years after the fact uh, in the same way, the same mythical telling of the story rather than the factual telling of the story. And it turns out that Mahakasapa was actually like one of those fierce Zen masters. And he and Ananda, two of the earliest disciples of the Buddha, kind of had a conflict about which is the best way to teach. Uh, Mahakasapa was the fierce and Ananda was the gentle. So you can see how the Chinese Zen masters of the style, that the stories we just heard, would have latched on to Mahakasapa as the very first authentic <laughs> transmission from the Buddha. So um, <clears throat> myths may actually be a better vessel for truth than fact. That's, that's a controversial statement. But they might actually hold more truth than fact because they're pointing to something that you can't actually describe. This awakening process, you can't actually put words to, but you can point to it with story. You can point to it with example. There's no conceptual language you can use for awakening. And also, you know, we have to be really careful that we don't confuse these mythical lineage stories with fact, because when we do that, we risk becoming fundamentalists. You know, fundamentalists, they try and turn myth into fact, and then they use that to beat themselves up and beat other people up. So, guru teachers, I'm swinging back around. This is all examples of guru teachers. Now, guru teachers may exist in the West right now, but I suspect that how young this practice is in the West and how little we are set up to support this kind of, of a practice, uh, a guru teacher would be a pretty rare thing. Uh, at least in, uh, I've met few. Um, <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh is maybe one of them, but he hasn't created a, a, a chain in which there's another guru teacher now that he's no longer teaching, because I think that he recognizes that it, that's, we're just not ready for that. But I think also being a guru teacher uh, is a real dangerous thing to be, because it, what happens is you are living a mythical reality 
that you can't actually live up to. You know that you aren't the mythical reality of Masu kicking people in the chest and waking them up. And so the teachers are left separated and unsupported by peers. And I think the teachers are, I mean, the students are also suffering under this because the students can develop a, an unrealistic idea of what they may become, what their practice should look like. And so they suffer from a kind of an uh, unrealistic expectation. So the spiritual friend teacher, in contrast. Let's talk about that. There's a word, kalyanamitra, in in Sanskrit. And it means uh, spiritual friend. It comes from the roots kalyana, means lovely or beautiful, and mitra means friend. So it can mean friend of the lovely, friend of the beautiful, or spiritual friend. And this word shows up in the Mahayana Sutras, uh, we, we, we see reference to it. And a spiritual friend sort of teacher is one who sees us as we are and loves us as we are. Loves us into being the best that we can be. They model this kind of spiritual friendship. They're not exactly peers, but they are people who have been down the path ahead of us and can help us as we're going down the path. So anyone can be a spiritual friend and anyone can support us on the path. Uh, and, and again, you, I think you can trust to know these people when you see them. It's not uh, age or their studies or their titles or institutions that make them into a spiritual friend. It's the beauty of their practice. Thich Nhat Hanh really uh, exemplified that. When he, was, when he would walk into a room, you knew he walked into the room. There was no ambiguity. It wasn't just another person walking into the room. There was something about him that you could recognize immediately. So a spiritual friend type of teacher is always teaching. And they don't have to do it through Dharma talks or interviews or anything special. They transmit the teachings by dwelling happily in the present moment. They transmit the teachings by transforming their own suffering in real time, right now. They transmit the teachings by expressing mindfulness in every activity that they do. And they do that whether their actions are seen or not seen. A spiritual friend teacher knows that the student is always inside of her all the time. And so her actions matter. Her hidden actions matter. Nothing can be thrown away. <clears throat> There's not as much to say about a spiritual friend teacher because it's not a big deal. You know, it doesn't have to be someone that's dinged on the head, with the magic wand. 
You can be spiritual teachers for each other in the Sangha. Spiritual friend teachers. So how do we choose a teacher? What do you look for when you want to uh, work with somebody to help you to wake up? Well, there's some questions I think that we can ask. The first question is, are they trustworthy? Do they walk the path with integrity? And this doesn't mean that they're the perfect guru that's set aside and somehow special and, and never challenged. But it does mean that they know how to transform their suffering. So you might see a spiritual friend type of teacher suffering and then also see that that person is able to transform it. But it doesn't mean there's some kind of um, God floating above the the earth. Another question is, uh, are they kind? Mm -hmm. Kindness is a facet of awakened mind. And, And kindness can manifest differently with different situations and with different people but it's also a very important quality in my experience. So it might manifest in uh, the type of uh, kindness of Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara that listens to all the suffering in the world, uh, excluding nothing, no judgment. Or it could be the kindness of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of understanding. And Manjushri carries a sword and cuts through delusion. So sometimes the most kind thing that can happen is direct action, cutting right through someone's delusion. Could be Kasitigarbha kindness. Kasitigarbha is the bodhisattva that walks with people in whatever hell realm they happen to be in, just right there beside them. Or it could be Samantabhadra kindness, the bodhisattva that acts, the bodhisattva, that's the activist, the one who gets things done. Kindness can look very different, but are they kind? Do they have that spark in them? Another question you might ask is, is is this person happy? And that doesn't mean they go around with a smile on their, their face all the time, or they seem ecstatic all the time, but By happy, I mean, do they know how to dwell in the present moment? Do they know how to see all the events of their life as the path? The events they like and the events they don't like. Do they have a kind of lightness about them? So I think as we're choosing a teacher, we have to trust our own wisdom. You know, we have have to... Um, look deeply into ourselves and, and decide for ourselves if this person is the right one. And you have to be willing to hold the teacher and yourself accountable. So if you're unhappy with the teacher, you have to ask, is this because of them or is this because of me? And if it's because of them, it's really important that students hold a teacher accountable. A teacher should be willing to be challenged. A teacher should be embedded in a system of accountability. 
you know, it's, they have to be in a system of accountability and they have to be willing to be challenged because it's practical. They don't want to make the Sangha suffer from their own shortcomings. And a spiritual friend teacher knows that they have shortcomings. So they build systems that protect the Sangha from themselves. And they, they also do this because it's practical for their practice. They don't want to be in a situation where they're isolated and holding their suffering uh, un- behind some veil uh, that says, I don't suffer. Nothing's going on with me. It's all you. Because they know that that is suffering right there. And they don't want to hold that. So if, if you think that the problem is with the teacher, hold the teacher accountable. If you think that the problem is with you, hold yourself accountable. Right? They both go together. Um, you might ask yourself, am I seeing this problem with the teacher because I'm defending my own stuck place? And we all do that. I've done that with my teachers a lot. A good teacher is going to challenge you to let go of your delusions. And so you're not going to like what they say sometimes. Sometimes you're going to get really angry at them. Yeah. But you have to be responsible for seeing that for yourself. The teacher can't make you see that for yourself. You have to be responsible for that. And, and we don't want to do it. It's painful. And we resist it. And we resist it mightily. And we're like toddlers. We fall on the ground and have a big tantrum. <laughs> I've done all this. You know, I, I'm speaking from experience. <clears throat> Okay, so the next question is, how do we work with a teacher? If you've identified a teacher you want to work with, how do you actually get the most out of that relationship? I think one of the most important things to do is show up. Right? Especially in early years of practice, there's a lot of vacillation. You know, people show up for a while and they think, oh, this is great, this is the greatest thing, and they feel really committed, and then it gets tough and they disappear. And then they come back after a while, and they, they, they disappear again. Um, you know, the, the teacher's asking you to wake up, but you say, no, I'm not waking up to that. You know, the teacher might say, what about this? No, I'm not touching that. So, you know, out, out you go. Um, so this is really a typical pattern. And the teacher has been through this him or herself. So they know this. And they're showing up very regularly for you. They're showing up to hold you in those kind of cycles. So if you want to work with a teacher, um, you've got to show up too. Uh, One other thing you need to do is is trust. if, if If you've committed to this teacher, if they're good, you have to give them your trust. And that's not blind trust. You know, we talked about holding people accountable. You've really got to do that. But you've got to... Give them enough trust that it can be a fruitful relationship for you. And you can expect that you're going to transfer your suffering onto the teacher. You're going to project your, your difficulties and you're going to project on them quality, good qualities that they don't necessarily have that are actually yours. This is, this is really normal to project onto the teacher. So, so we have to trust this process and we have to hold ourselves to seeing our projections as projections. And so that trust has to hold us through those inevitable disappointments because a teacher will disappoint you. It's inevitable. They'll disappoint you because they're a human being. 
and human beings disappoint each other. But again, don't accept unethical behavior when they disappoint you. You have to learn what is uh, a line that you won't cross and what is something that you can forgive. But do report that ethical behavior because you have to protect yourself and the Sangha and the teacher. Now you have to know too that not everybody's a good fit. You know, just because you're a good person and that's a good teacher does not mean that you two are good together. Right? So, so be willing to, um, to, to know that. And a good teacher should happily refer you to somebody else. You know, a good teacher won't get possessive or jealous and, or, or um, talk badly behind your back because you didn't keep them as the teacher. Well, that's, that, if that happens after you leave, it's a pretty good sign that wasn't a real good teacher. So um, it's okay that it's not a good fit. So the last quality I want to say about how to work with a teacher is to support the teacher. Uh, this is a partnership. A teacher and a student is a partnership. The teacher has likely given up a lot to be able to be there for you. You know, most of us can be pretty certain that that we make more money than the teacher does because the teacher has created a life in which they've stepped out of a lot of economic activity. Most every teacher that I know in the Pum Village tradition can teach because they have some kind of a sponsor that makes it possible for them to teach. Someone who, who does the finances for them. So when, when a teacher supports you, the teacher supports you by being available on a consistent basis, to making space in their life and making space in their heart to meet you where you are. And the student supports the teacher through generosity, by showing up physically, by showing up with dana, with generosity, by supporting the sangha that supports both the teacher and the student, so this has to be a partnership for it to work. Uh, you can't come to a teacher and take without also giving. It's not sustainable. So that's basically what I want to say about uh, what a teacher is and how to find a teacher. And please take all this with a great big grain of salt because this is my experience and uh, my, 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 I just very well may be wrong. <laughs> 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 so decide for yourself. <laughs>